Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, chapter 4, and we're going to be considering together verses 8 through 16. The book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 8 through 16. This is the second in a short series of messages on the, the state of the church in 2009. Where are we as evangelical believers in the United States? And this morning, my focus is on consumerism in the church. Consumerism in the church. I'll explain that as we go along. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8, Paul says, Therefore it says, when he had ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature, which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Last week, as we considered the the first part of this, the, the focus that we had was on a fellowship, a community of believers that is characterized by loving each other, that is characterized by being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit, and by a community that likes to be together, that comes together, does not forsake the assembling together, but enjoys coming together in fellowship. A church that is loving, that is in unity, and that enjoys the assembly of the saints in order to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, and especially as times get tougher. Now, this morning, I asked the question, but what for? (laughs) You know, so we're a loving, unified body that likes each other. So what? What is our goal? Are we more than the Kiwanis Club? Are we more than you know, a local exercise group, uh, are we more than some social uh, night out with the neighbors? Why is the church? What is our purpose? Why do we come together? Jesus is the first reason. It took my next point. I want to suggest to you that there are three things that the Scripture identifies. There may be more, but there are at least three that the church identifies as the purpose of the church. Why we come together. Why we are the church. Why we we get together as the assembly of the saints. And the first one of those is to glorify 
Jesus Christ. To magnify Him, to lift Him up. Now, I want to ask you the question, what does it mean to glorify someone? I mean, how do you, how do you what do you, that's a Bible word, you know? Sometimes we, we hit those Bible words, it's like, what's that mean? To glorify means to make known the attributes, the character, the person that you're magnifying. You know, when they give out the Grammys or whatever like that, they give out these awards, they, recognize, they award the Nobel Priest Prize, they're glorifying somebody for what they've done and who they are. Now, they may have a warped notion of all of that, but that's the point, to bring them up on the stage, to put them in front of everybody, to award them and recognize a significant contribution of this person in their intelligence or their giftedness or their writing or their acting or their singing. They've done something that ought to be recognized by everybody. We exist, number one, to magnify Jesus Christ in this earth. To call attention to Him. To put Him on the stage. To let people know who He is. What He's like. What His character is. What He's done. When we sing, we celebrate Him. He is my sanity. He is my clarity. That magnifies Jesus. His character. Who He is in my life. We exalt Him. We, we worship Him. But we talk about Him. And we extol His virtues. And we ascribe worth to Almighty God as we come together. We assemble, first of all, to call attention to God. Why do we do that? Because, friends, we live in a world that God made. With people that He created in His own image. To live eternally with Him. He loves them, and they don't have a clue who He is. He wants them to spend eternity in His presence, but they are alienated from Him. And they don't have any idea who He really is, what He's really like, or what it takes to have a relationship with Him, or how to have eternal life. They have no idea. And the church exists to call attention to the character of God. To lift Him up. And to make the world know Him. In His person, in His love, in His majesty, in His glory. In His holiness and in His forgiveness. That they can come to a knowledge of the true and living God. That makes the church, if that were the only thing, that would make the church unique and distinct from all other clubs and, and societies. We exist to glorify Jesus Christ. But secondly, we exist as a body to testify to the transformational power of Jesus in our lives. Now, I just spent a week in central Florida. And every time I drove anywhere, I passed about a hundred churches. Seem like it anyway. About half of them are Baptist. And they all proclaim forgiveness of sin and having heaven as our reward. They all proclaim that. 
But one of the things that is lacking, it was lacking in my spiritual growth as I grew up in that environment, and it's lacking today, is what happens between the day I get saved and the day I go to heaven. And for most people, that is, trust Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, take out my eternal life insurance policy, and then try to be a good Christian and hang on till the end. And there's no concept of the transformational power of Jesus who came to change our lives. And friends, when we become believers in Jesus Christ, we're not supposed to just hang on as we are until we go to heaven. We are to be transformed by the power of the indwelling Spirit of God into the likeness and image of Jesus. We're to grow up. We're, we're, Jesus wants to take fools and make them wise. He wants to make, take addicts and set them free of addiction. He wants to take people with ornery temperaments and sweeten them. And people with marshmallow, gushy temperaments and toughen them up. He wants to make us different. He wants to change our lives. He wants to produce holiness and godliness. He wants to, to give us joy in growing up in the aspects unto Jesus Christ so that our lives change. They not only get better, they develop quality, they develop depth, they develop meaning. We live better lives on this earth. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said if the whole thing was a hoax, it would still be worth living as a Christian. I don't know that I agree with that in its entirety. Thank God it's not a hoax. But the point he was making is, if you just adopted Christian philosophy, your life would be better. But it's not a philosophy. It's a person living in us by the Spirit to transform us into His image. And we are called to witness to that transformational power of Christ in our lives. And I want to say to you that witnessing is not explaining the four spiritual laws or the Roman roads or EE3 or some other method of evangelism. That's merely explaining the gospel message. And explaining the gospel message is not witnessing. That's what comes after you've witnessed. Witnessing is telling someone else what you have seen and experienced in your life. It's a testimony. Thank you, Angela. It's a testimony. If you witness a car accident where somebody runs a red light and broadsides another car and that ends up in court in a lawsuit and they call you as a witness... They don't want you to give an assessment of the angle of the trajectory of the vehicle and the speed of the impact and the transfer of kinetic energy and the, 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 uh, all the things that happen. That's for the experts. What they want you to do is say, I was at this intersection and I saw this driver, that guy right there in the car, 
drive through a red light, and he crashed into the passenger side of this other car, and the person sitting there was seriously injured. I saw them bleeding all over the place. I saw them moaning in pain. I saw that. That is a witness. And when you witness, you tell people what Jesus has done in your life. How He's changed you. What you've heard from Him. How you have experienced Him. You talk about the transformational power that you have by experience. And then, friends, I'll tell you honestly, I hope that you all someday will be able to give an adequate answer and an explanation for the hope that is in you by explaining the gospel. But if you can't do that right now, don't worry about it. Just witness. And if they say to you, how can I know this Jesus? Well, for lack of anything else, come to church with me. I know people there that can explain it. You know, you can bring, you should someday grow up and be an expert. You should, every one of you. But if you're not yet, don't worry about it. You still witness. What has Jesus done? What do I know of Him? What have I experienced? And the community of faith, this company right here this morning in this room, we together manifest and witness to the transformational power of Jesus Christ in our lives. We can tell the world. We are different for the better because we met Jesus. And this is what he did for me. This is how he changed me. No one else can say that but someone who's met Jesus. And we can bring people into this community and let them observe how Jesus has changed Tim and how he has changed Jan and, and Mark and Tom. And Wayne, how he's changed you. And you can be a testimony collectively. Wow. Something's happening in these people's lives. And his name is Jesus. I want to know him. We're called to glorify him. We're called to witness to his transformational power. And then we are called to maturity, to grow up in Christ. Missionaries who have served in Cote d'Ivoire and have talked about the amazing revival that has occurred there in, in recent years have also described the church in Cote d'Ivoire as being a mile wide and an inch deep. You can come to faith in Jesus Christ. You can trust Him for the forgiveness of your sins. You can be born again and invite His Spirit to dwell in you as his temple. And while there will be transformation, because God always brings change, growth and maturity and depth and sanctification in the likeness of Christ requires teaching and discipleship and modeling that we can grow up in Jesus. God does not intend to leave us babies flailing around at the edge of the water. He wants us to learn to swim in its depths, in safety, to be mature in Christ, to have a knowledge of God, 
to, to see our bad habits drop away as Jesus replaces them with spirit-filled living, to see our wrong thinking transformed by the renewing of our minds that we might demonstrate the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect, to, to have our lives changed by the process of watching older Christians model for us a life of, of spiritual maturity. Watching strong, young, dynamic warriors of the faith do battle with the enemy and win. John says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know the one that was from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have done battle and overcome the enemy. And I'm, I'm writing to you children because you've come to know Jesus uh, and, and you've, you've come to know the Father. You've, you've come by faith into this family. He clearly identifies stages of growth in the spiritual life. And we are called to come together as a family with newborns and children and young people and adults and seniors with the white hair of wisdom in the Spirit share with us their lives so that we grow in Jesus Christ. We're here to be a community of change that models and magnifies and witnesses the power of God on this earth because this earth does not know Him. And yet He made this world and He loves this world and the people He loves in it. And he sent his son because he loves this world. And we are the ones who by the transformational power of Jesus Christ demonstrate this to the world. So I ask, why does this maturity fail to develop in many local congregations? Because it does fail to develop in the church in the United States. It does fail to develop. What are we missing? read uh, an article in the paper. The title of it is Churches Try to Keep Pace with Modern Life. I believe this was the Northwest Herald. And it's talking about a church within 10 miles of this one. I won't name the church or the pastor. I'm going to leave that out, although it's in the article. So I'm not talking uh, under the table, so to speak. Blank Church plans to ask its parishioners in an online survey whether they would like a 20 to 30 minute Eucharistic Sunday morning service. The service, complete with the sacraments and the forgiveness of sins, would be aimed at time-crunched congregants, said the pastor. People have soccer games and golf and other activities said the pastor. This gives them another option. Such a service is under consideration, but pastor said it would depend on the results of the church's online survey and other factors. They already have two Sunday services, which they try to limit to one hour each. 
But this would be a complete Eucharistic service in 20 to 30 minutes for those whose lives are busy. What do you think? Should we set up a drive through window over here? Here's the bread, here's the cup. God bless you, amen. We could get it down to five. Yeah? Yeah. It, you know, and, and what is going to be the deciding factor? How the congregants respond to an online survey. Friends, do you see a problem in the church? This is not a liberal church. This is a church that historically, this group, this denomination, has historically been evangelical. I'm not talking about some way out wacky place. I'm talking about a congregation that has historically been evangelical by denomination. What's wrong with us? People ask a key question when they go looking for a church. The question they ask is, will it meet my needs? Will it satisfy me? I want this for me. I want this for my kids. I want this for whomever. Is it going to do for me what I want? How much demand is it going to make on my busy life? I am busy, you know. i got a lot going on. I need a 20-minute Eucharistic service. Because I've got a soccer game i got to get to. I've got a tea time. Not the sipping variety. i got to make it. Do we see a problem here? The church in our country, and it's infecting us all, is being overwhelmed by a consumer mentality where the people say, I want you to give me what I want on my terms, and the church is responding by saying, I'll survey you and design a program to meet the greatest number of needs that's possible. Even churches that have targeted missions do so with the intent of satisfying a particular group of people and meeting those needs. Because pastors know and denominational leaders know that if we can't keep folks happy, we can't keep them coming. And if we can't keep them coming, they won't be giving. And if they're not giving, our organization will die. And we have to survive. And so in a consumerized mentality, churches as an institution are seeking to identify felt needs in order to satisfy the customer so they can keep the dollars flowing to sustain the institution. And I submit to you, friends, this is not the church. 
And when we view it that way, even subconsciously, we are in serious trouble. There are some things that Jesus said that all of us have trouble believing. We hear them, we know them, but we have trouble with them in practice. One of them is interesting because it's not recorded in the Gospels, but somehow it must have been handed down by oral tradition because Paul quotes Jesus in Acts chapter 20 when he's meeting with those Ephesian elders, and he's about to see them for the last time. And he says to them, I want you to work hard. I want you to be involved in the assembly. I want you to work hard. As Jesus said, and he quotes Jesus, this is what he says. It is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Now, we hear that. But I submit to you that we have a hard time believing that it's true. Because we don't act like it. Jesus said, you will find more fulfillment in your life. You will find more meaning and more depth when you give and when you serve than you will when you are receiving. Life takes on greater depth for you. It is more blessed. There's another one of those Bible words, you know. And we don't use that word very often. Are you blessed today? Blessed be thou. You know, we, we, we use that word in a Christianized kind of form, and it's like, what does that mean? It's like glorify, blessed be thou. What does blessed mean? It means your life will have a richer quality. You will have more meaning. You will go to bed at night saying, this was a good day. I loved today. This was worthwhile. You'll pause to meditate and it will spring to your heart. Man, this is the life. And how do you get that? You know? with a bag of chips and a can of beer and a clicker in front of the flat screen, with a pole and the flat bottom out on the lake? What is the life? Jesus says, it comes when you serve. It comes when you give. When you are putting out for others. Your life takes on meaning. When you are consuming it for yourself, it lacks something significant. If you want to shrivel up and die, just hoard everything. If you want to be the richest, most fulfilled person on the planet, invest everything in other people. It's an amazing thing. I remember many years ago, I had a heart surgery when I was 12 years old, and uh, it was actually my uncle's mother, uh, Ruth Wilhelm, sent me a get well card by Helen Steiner Rice. And I've never forgotten that because in it was, it was a 
series of poems that she had written, and one of them was the difference between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. Did you know that the Jordan River goes between them? But the Sea of Galilee is a sea that gives out everything it receives. It's living. There's fish there. It's, it's vibrant. It's alive. It's, it's a wellspring of vitality. But the Dead Sea, it runs into it and stops. It's salty. It's stale. And nothing grows there. It's the Dead Sea. Because it hoards every drop. Whereas the Galilee is a throughput. It receives and it gives. I've never forgotten that illustration. Jesus, okay, look. Who knows you best? Who knows you best? When my computer is malfunctioning, I got people. Okay? I got a go-to guy. In our church, he's an IT specialist. When my computer's not working, I call him up and I say, I have a problem because he, he knows more in 10 seconds than I could read and figure out in, you know, all the manuals and 10 hours on hold with a, with his help center. He just gets it fixed because he knows what's there. Who knows you best? Wouldn't you suppose the one who made you, the, the one who wrote the program, wouldn't you suppose the designer has a little bit of insight into what will make you fulfilled in your purposeful life? Okay, he says, the one who made you, you will be blessed if you give. And to the rich man who tore down his barns and built a bigger silo and a bigger barn to hoard all of his produce, who said to himself, wow, I've got the life now. I can kick back and put my feet up and take my ease. I'm rich. I've got everything I need. And Jesus said, you fool. This day, your soul is required of you, and you have nothing to show for your life because you've made no eternal investments. <clears throat> Another thing we have trouble with is when Jesus says, except a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it bears fruit. I don't have time to go into all the details of this, but friends... Our culture is training us to be a seeker, and I'm not talking about after God. It's training us to be seeker-oriented. I want what I want what I want, to go after the gold, to, to live for possessions. We see the bumper stickers that says, He who dies with the most toys wins. No, they don't. They die. And when they stand before God, what have they got to show for it? You know, some, some skidoos, a boat, a big house, a Mercedes, a flat screen television. What? Thou fool, this day your life is required of you. And so we look for stuff. 
We've been trained to think that it's all about me. It's all about making me happy, satisfying my needs, making my emotions feel good. I want what I want. And Jesus says, if you live that way, you're going to be miserable in the end. Even if you're a Christian, you don't get it. You're throwing your life away, and you're not going to be happy. You're going to be miserable. But if you invest your life, if you give your life, if you die to yourself, and live for Jesus and for others, with your time and your energy and your resources, your life, will take on incredible meaning and depth. People ask, when they look for a church, how can this church meet my needs? I want to submit to you that if you're looking for a church, either because you're visiting here today and you're wondering, is this the place? Or because I'm thoroughly ticking you off, and next week you're going to be looking. I'm going to give you... Let me give you three things to look for in a church that will, that will be a church that will help you grow and develop. The first thing you need to find is a church that is faithful to the Word of God and to the doctrine of the faith. That's the first thing you need to find. I listened to a broadcast driving to the airport Friday morning. It was wee hours of the morning. I was headed up to Orlando. I had like a 7.20 flight or something. I was listening to Moody Broadcast Network, and I heard a panel discussion about the emergent church. I haven't had a lot of time to really investigate the emergent church. I wish I had more time just to read and reflect and think, but for some reason that's not in my life right now. And I have not thoroughly investigated the emergent church. But as I listened to this panel discussion about the emergent church and people in evangelical circles who have interviewed some of the leaders, the gurus of the emergent church. This is what they were saying, and now I understand why evangelicals are having trouble here, or at least some of them are having trouble. For many, there is a denial of hell. A loving God doesn't have a hell, so let's take that out of the books. There is a denial of the sinfulness of sin. People make mistakes. Let's just help each other along. There is not an insistent demand on the virgin birth of Christ or his deity necessarily, or his sinlessness. The holiness of God is sort of passé, but Jesus can be my buddy. So let's get together in a little group and encourage each other and talk about our buddy Jesus. If that is true, then that's troublesome. If it's a church that does not proclaim justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, plus nothing, it's in trouble. If it's a church that denies the truthfulness of this word, its accuracy and infallibility, we're in trouble. Find a church that is faithful 
to the Word of God and the doctrines historically of the biblical faith once and for all delivered to all the saints. What is that? Let me give you some very simple points to remember. You start with the Scripture because apart from this you have no authoritative revelation. Is this Bible believed to be the Word of God, inerrant as originally inspired and infallible in all of its teachings from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books? Is this a dependable, authoritative, infallible source of spiritual truth and everything else it touches? Do they believe the Bible? Do they believe that Jesus Christ eternally existed as God, but came to this earth through a virgin womb, was born physically into this planet, fully man, fully God, lived a sinless life, and died on the cross shedding blood for my sin, which was a requirement of a holy God was buried and rose bodily out of the grave on the third day, ascended bodily, physically, literally into the heavens, and will literally return one day to this earth to establish His kingdom. Is this the Jesus they preach? And do they teach that all who believe in Him and trust Him for salvation through repentance of sin and receiving Him as Lord and Savior will in fact be saved eternally on the basis of that faith alone and that those who do not will in fact spend eternal life separated from God in conscious torment, experiencing His wrath in a place called hell. It must be a doctrinally sound fellowship that teaches and preaches the Scriptures. And we live in a pluralistic culture that teaches tolerance. And we want to say to everybody, what you believe is okay, what I believe is okay, what we all believe is okay, as long as we have good feelings and kind intentions and our motives are right. And yet, we live in a world that knows the difference between relativism and absolutes. You know how I know that? Because if you wake up in the middle of the night, Because there's this glowing flickering on your wall, and you look out the window and see that your neighbor's house is on fire. You will go to that neighbor and and pound on his door and scream at him that his house is on fire. Get out of it. And what if he says to you, oh, my friend, that's just your belief. I don't believe in fire. In fact... I believe in meditation. And if I just go away into that quiet place in my spirit, I won't even feel the heat. This is not going to hurt me. I don't believe in fire. What are you going to do? Is he right or wrong? Everybody knows. He's stupid. He's going to die in the fire. And we come to our faith and we bring a totally different mindset. Oh, I don't believe in hell. And I think there's other ways to God. My friends, we witness the true and living God. I didn't make this up. This isn't my religion. God has given me His Word and told me the truth about life and eternity. And people say, you're bigots. 
you say that you have to believe in Jesus to be saved. And if you don't trust Jesus, then you can't go to heaven. That would make us bigots. That would. That would make us bigoted. We're not bigoted. We're truth tellers. It's not my way or the highway. I'm arrogant. I'm right. I've got all the answers. It's the truth. And people don't go to hell because they didn't receive Jesus. They go to hell because they've sinned against a holy God who loves them, but hates their sin and will deal with them in punishment. And they will spend a Christless eternity in a literal hell because they are sinners. And the only way out is the Savior who loves them and died in their place. Pound on the door, scream at the windows. They're going to burn up. It's not a matter of opinion. It's the truth. You have to have a church that preaches that truth. And friends, when you recognize that, my second point is, it has to be a congregation that is missional. We have to have the lostness of the lost weighing upon our hearts with the urgency to take action across the street in our neighborhood and around the world. Because if you wake up in the middle of the night and see the orange flicker on your wall and look out the window and see your neighbor's house on fire and roll over and go back to sleep, you are morally responsible. You have to take action. When your neighbor's life is in danger, you must act. And the lives of people in this world are dying for want of the knowledge of a loving God who created them and loves them and sent His Son to die for them. And we have a moral duty to tell them because they're burning up and they don't know it. And we have to wake them up and we have to communicate the message. We have to tell them the truth. We have a moral duty. God said to Ezekiel, if I tell you this stuff and you don't warn them, their blood is on your hands. If you go warn them and they tell you you're crazy and they go their own way, then their blood is on their own hands. But if I tell you to warn them and you say, no, never mind, I'm not concerned. I will hold you responsible. We have a duty and you need to be in a church that takes that Duty, seriously. We have a duty to tell in every way we can, in every opportunity. And the third question you should ask is, is there a place for me to serve? Because you have gifts that God has given you. You have abilities that are Holy Spirit given. And you don't need to be in a church that does everything for you. You don't need to be in a church that serves you up what titillates and satisfies your emotions and meets your needs. You need to be in a church that gives you an opportunity to go to work in the kingdom because you have gifts. And you will have a blessed life if you get involved. Not if you sit on the sideline and drink it in. And I want to tell you the truth here, friends. I'm not, I'm not preaching right now the programs of this church, okay? 
If we're still doing the same thing that we were doing 50 years ago, 40 years ago, this church was 50 years old last May. If we're still doing the same things the same way we did then, you know what? We're out of touch. We're out of date. And, and you probably shouldn't get involved in those programs. Because they change. They change with time. The culture changes. Community changes. We have the same message, but we need to always be wrapping it differently. And the Holy Spirit raises up ministry. And if we let him, the Holy Spirit will kill ministry that has run its course. We, I'm not telling you this morning, come join my program. I'm the pastor. I've come up with some ideas. Come get on board with my plan. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, God has planted within you aptitude, ability, giftedness. He has anointed you for ministry. He's raising burdens up in your heart. You need to be in a place that will give you the opportunity to live out that calling that He has placed on your life. You must be actively involved. You must be committed, invested in kingdom work, not just with your money, but with your time, with your giftedness, with your ability. Will they let you go to work? Jesus, pointing out to his disciples, says, The fields are whitened, the harvest is ready. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth workers into the field that the harvest can come in. Jesus said, Work, for the night is coming when man's work is done. Friends, in this passage of Scripture, Paul says he gave pastors, teachers, evangelists, prophets, and, and apostles to build up, the equip the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. The operative words are working and building. We're called to be a part of the process, not a spectator. You need to be in a place that allows you to do that. So if I've ticked you off, go look and then come back. Because these things are true of this assembly. I'm not here to take an online survey and find out what your needs are. And then see if I can design something to meet them. When God called me to preach from the call of Jeremiah. And God knew my nature. And if you know me well, you know this about me. I like to please people. I like to make people happy. I like to solve all their problems. I like to rescue everybody. That's, that's my nature. If you know me, you know that. And I don't like to make people upset, and I don't like to confront, and I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not a natural sparrer, you know, fighter. That's not my, my nature. But what God said to me when he called me to preach, using the words to Jeremiah, he said, do not be dismayed at their faces, for you shall say to them all that I command, and you shall speak what I give you. I have called you this day to uproot, to pluck up, to tear down, and to destroy, and then to build and to plant. You will say what I tell you to say. And while I will bend over backwards to meet you in every way I know I can, I dare not fail to please my Lord. And in a certain level, I don't care what you think. Because God didn't call me to tell you what you wanted to hear. He called me to tell you the truth. And that's what I have to do. 
And you need to be in a place where the truth is preached, a place where the the mission of the kingdom is proclaimed, and we personally feel the burden, and in a place where you can be a part of the action in giving your life in sacrificial service to reach the world with the message of Jesus Christ in the unique way that he has equipped you to do it. That's the church you need to be in. That's where you'll grow. That's where you'll fulfill the mission and calling of the church. And I want to challenge us this morning, friends. I don't think we're, we're over the hill yet or off the cliff in this wild fanaticism of, of having the, the, the please everybody church. I don't think we're even close to that. But I want us to wake up to the risk and the dangers and reevaluate who we are and what we're doing and readjust our thinking biblically. We're here to glorify Jesus Christ. We're here to testify to the transformation of his power in our lives. We're here to grow up and become spiritual fathers and mothers of the faith. We're here to mature. We ought to have fun doing it. It ought to be enjoyable. It ought to, Jesus said, I've come to give you abundant life. It ought to just be overflowing with bounty. But it will do so because we're committed to each other and to him and we're devoted in loving service to the kingdom. And that's our first priority. Father, I pray this morning that you will burn your message in our hearts. We will have the wisdom to seek what is right and the willingness to accept it in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.